Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Pay Per View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week in place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with probably the most important story in terms of events of the week. Yes, the Syria-Russia situation rolls on, but in terms of events this week only, the most important story surely would be the fact that the two Koreas, North and South Korea, have come together and promised lasting peace between the two countries. The article I'm going to read about that now is in The Guardian. North and South Korean leaders promised lasting peace for Peninsula. The leaders of North and South Korea promised a landmark summit to bring lasting peace to the Peninsula with a commitment to denuclearization and to ending decades of hostilities. Speaking at the end of an extraordinary day that began with a lingering handshake across the demarcation line separating their countries. The North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and the South Korean president Moon Jae-in issued a joint statement that was short on detail but offered cause for optimism as the world looks ahead to a summit between Kim and Donald Trump. The US president, in his first comments on the declaration, tweeted, Good things are happening, but only time will tell. He later tweeted, Korean War to end. The United States and all of its great people should be very proud of what is now taking place in Korea. Speaking at the White House, Trump warned that the US was not going to be played by North Korea. Later, the US president said he was getting close to choosing a venue for talks with Kim. We're setting up meetings now, he said. We're down to two countries and we'll let you know what that site is. At a joint press conference with Angela Merkel, Trump said, Maximum pressure will continue until denuclearization occurs. I look forward to our meeting, which will be quite something. The Pan Munjong Declaration, named after the Truce Village that hosted the talks on Friday, committed the two Koreas to seek the complete denuclearization of the peninsula. South and North Korea confirmed the common goal of realizing through complete denuclearization a nuclear-free Korean peninsula, it said. South and North Korea shared the view that the measures being initiated by North Korea are very meaningful and crucial for denuclearization of the Korean peninsula and agreed to carry out their respective roles and responsibilities in this regard. The statement did not specify what Pyongyang expected in return for abandoning its nuclear weapons, the regime's best deterrent against what it regards as a hostile United States. Speaking outside the Peace House on the southern side of the border that has divided the Korean Peninsula for 65 years, the leaders also pledged to push for talks with the US and possibly China to formally end the 1950-53 Korean War with a peace treaty to replace the uneasy truce that stopped hostilities. Noting that more than a decade had passed since the country's leaders last met, Kim and Moon agreed to talk regularly by phone and meet more often, starting with the summit in Pyongyang in autumn. They vowed to work more closely on a host of bilateral issues, including reuniting families divided by the Korean War and improving cross-border transport links. Months after relations between the two countries sank to their lowest level following North Korean missile launches and its sixth nuclear test, Moon said he and Kim were aware that the hopes of 80 million North and South Koreans rested on their shoulders. We were able to stand together today and agree that we should denuclearize the Korean Peninsula, Moon said, according to a translation provided by South Korea's Arirang TV. Kim standing nearby behind a separate podium, he said, to completely denuclearize, we declare that we will cooperate to bring about an everlasting peace on the peninsula. Moon applauded Kim's courage and determination and vowed that there would be no going back to an era of tension and provocation that has occasionally brought the neighbors to the brink of conflict. We are giving a great present to the citizens of the two Koreas, he said. The goodwill measures will begin with a halt to all forms of hostility on land, at sea and in the air, the declaration said. The demilitarized zone, the heavily armed border separating the two countries and the western maritime border will be turned into peace zones. Tuesday, both countries will suspend all loudspeaker propaganda broadcasts and dismantle broadcasting equipment. They will also stop sending propaganda leaflets across the border. This was published on Friday 27th of April. Kim said, we hope we will not repeat the mistake of the past. I hope this will be an opportunity for the Korean people to move freely from north to south. We need to take responsibility for our own history. 
We've waited for this day for a very long time. We are tied by blood and cannot be separated. We are the same country, the same people, and should not be separated by hostility. We hope we can open a new road towards a new future, and that is why I crossed the demarcation line today. We hope for a new era of peace, and we have reaffirmed our commitment to that. Dryong Kim, a senior fellow at the Korean Peninsula Future Forum, said the wording in the statement was encouraging as Kim prepares for a summit with Trump in late May or early June. It's good that the nuclear language is in there and including complete denuclearization is a win for Moon, she said. It's really aimed at setting up the meeting with Trump. But she said it would have been easy for Kim to agree to the statement since it reiterates what their position has been all along. And from Pyongyang's perspective, denuclearization would include significant concessions from the US on its military presence in South Korea. In the grand scheme of things, this declaration is continuing the spirit of the 2007 agreement. And much of what we see in this declaration has been agreed to before, she said. But it's still a long and complicated road ahead. Earlier, the two leaders signed a joint statement before standing to shake hands. At Moon's instigation, they joined hands and raised their arms aloft, ending the exchange with an embrace and more of the broad smiles that were a feature of their joint public appearances throughout the day. International reaction to the summit was largely positive. China, the North's main ally and its biggest economic partner, described the leaders' handshake as a historic moment. We applaud the Korean leaders' historic step and appreciate the political decisions and courage, Hua Chunying, a foreign ministry spokeswoman, told reporters. We hope and look forward to them taking this opportunity to further open a new journey of long-term stability on the peninsula. The White House said in a statement that it was hopeful that talks will achieve progress toward a future of peace and prosperity for the entire Korean peninsula and looks forward to continuing robust discussions in preparation for the planned meeting between President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un in the coming weeks. The UK Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson sounded a more cautious note. While very encouraged by the summit, he said, I don't think that anybody looking at the history of North Korea's plans to develop a nuclear weapon want to be over-optimistic at this point. But it's clearly good news that the two leaders are meeting, absolutely. Virginia Gersuchik, a senior lecturer at Aston University, said this is a very long game and confidence building will take a lot of time. I'm not sure a meeting between Kim Jong-un and President Trump would add anything to this particularly good development and inter-Korean relations today, and it might be that this would blur the line. Well, that's a very good point, because what the two Koreas have done is what is essential to achieve peace anywhere in the world, and that's bypass the West, especially America and Britain. They've sat down together and come to an agreement without the intervention of the West, which is only interested in conflict, invasion and war, and its own geopolitical agenda. I've said before that words are easy, watch the actions, because the actions will tell you whether statements and rhetoric are genuine or if they're just words. But this does seem to be genuine, and that's great news if it is, because the world is a very volatile place at the moment. And this is exactly what we need because North Korea has been on the West's wish list for a long time, along with Russia and China, as part of an agenda to conquer what's known as Eurasia, and also to kick off a global conflict to which can be offered massive changes in society to achieve the structure of society the elite want, like a world government and a world army, to impose the will of the world government on any nation or group that doesn't want to follow the orders of the world government doesn't want to surrender their lives to the orders of the world government. That's why we're being moved closer and closer to World War III, because afterwards, the structure of society they want can be offered to stop it ever happening again, even though they created it in the first place. So we'll see where this goes from here. I have no doubt the West are going to try to bring about conflict somehow, but for the moment anyway, at least, it seems there is peace between the two countries, and that's great news for the world. Terrible for the West and the elite behind the West, but brilliant for humanity in general. So that's uh, a good story. Not too many of them on pay-per-view or the news in general because of the way the world is, but that is one. One of the other big stories this week was the legal battle between the parents of Alfie Evans and the state in the form of a hospital called Alder Hay Hospital and the parents' attempts to travel to Italy to get treatment for their son, which Alder Hay had refused to give Alfie. 
This is in the Guardian. Alfie Evans dies at Alder Hay Hospital after life support withdrawn. A 23-month-old boy with a rare degenerative brain disease who was at the centre of protracted legal battle has died, his parents have said. Alfie Evans died at Alder Hay Children's Hospital in Liverpool in the early hours of Saturday morning. This was published on the Saturday. Announcing the news on Facebook on Saturday, his parents, Kate, James and Tom Evans, said our baby boy grew his wings tonight at 2.30am. We are heartbroken. Thank you everyone for all your support. Life support was withdrawn on Monday after a last-ditch appeal to the High Court was turned down. Alfie had been in a semi-vegetative state and scans of his brain had shown that almost all of it had been destroyed. Judges had agreed with doctors that further treatment would be futile and there was no hope of him getting better. Well, he may have had a chance to get better if he was allowed to be taken to Italy. His parents, who were both in their early 20s and from Liverpool, had insisted their son was not in pain or suffering but lost cases in the High Court, Court of Appeal, Supreme Court and European Court of Human Rights. Pope Francis, who met Alfie's father, tweeted, I am deeply moved by the death of little Alfie. Today I pray especially for his parents as God the Father receives him in his tender embrace. More than a thousand people gathered to release balloons in Springfield Park next to the hospital. Evans and James did not attend. Evans' sister Sarah told the crowd, I just want to thank you all for coming today. Our gorgeous little warrior took his last breath at 2.30 this morning. Our hearts are broken. We are absolutely shattered as a family. Thomas just wants to thank you all for the support you've all shown. There's only one Alfie Evans. Evans said on Thursday their lives have been turned upside down by the intense focus his son's case had received in Britain and around the world. Our little family, along with Alder Hayes, has become the centre of attention for many people around the world and it has meant we have not been able to live our lives as we would like, he said. The attention and emotion that Alfie's plight attracted and his parents' determined public campaign to get the treatment they believed he needed led to high tensions between supporters and staff for Alder Hay. Hospital managers said they were shocked at the barrage of abuse that came from some quarters when they found themselves at the centre of a social media storm. It led Merseyside Police to issue a warning over comments being made about the hospital online. After accepting that their options had been exhausted, Alfie's parents sought to build bridges with medical staff and pledged to work alongside doctors to give him the dignity and comfort he needed. In a statement issued on its website, Alder Hay Children's Hospital said, We wish to express our heartfelt sympathy and condolences to Alfie's family at this extremely distressing time. All of us feel deeply for Alfie, Kate, Tom and his whole family and our thoughts are with them. This has been a devastating journey for them. We would ask that the privacy and privacy of staff at Alder Hay is respected. The Archbishop of Liverpool, Malcolm McMahon, said on behalf of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales, I would like to express my deepest sympathy at this moment of loss to Tom and Kate as we hold little Alfie in our prayers. All who have been touched by the story of this little boy's heroic struggle for life will feel this loss deeply, but as a Christian, Alfie is the promises of God, who is loved to welcome him into his heavenly home. Although the past few weeks have been difficult with much activity on social media, we must recognise that all who have played a part in Alfie's life have wanted to act for his good as they see it. Above all, we must thank Tom and Kate for their instincting love of their son and the staff at Alder Hay Hospital for their professional care of Alfie. Now it is time for us to give Tom and Kate space to grieve their son's death and offer our prayers for hidden consolation for all. There's an article here on the Huffington Post website that goes into more detail. Alfie Evans, toddler at centre of court battle over treatment, dies. Doctors have removed Alfie's life support following a high court judge's ruling on Monday. However, he continued to live. His parents said that the youngster had defied doctors' expectations and they took their case to the Court of Appeal, but the application to take him abroad was rejected. Tom Evans said their lives had been turned upside down by the intense focus that the case had received. Just to go into the background for people who've not come across this story, although I imagine most people have. May the 9th, 2016. Alfie is born in Liverpool to parents Tom Evans and Kate James, now aged 21 and 20 respectively. December 2016. 
Alfie is taken to Alderhey Children's Hospital after suffering seizures. He will spend the next 12 months there. December the 11th, 2017, hospital bosses say they are liaising directly with the family after disagreements over his treatment. Alfie's parents said the hospital has applied to the High Court to remove parental rights and withdraw ventilation. This is the same hospital that say they wish to express their heartfelt sympathy and condolences to the family. December 19th, 2017, a High Court judge, Mr Justice Hayden, begins overseeing the case at a public hearing in the Family Division of the High Court in London. The hospital says continuing life support treatment would not be in Alfie's best interests, but his parents disagree and say they want permission to fly him to Italy for treatment. The judge says he will make a decision on what is best for Alfie. February 1st, 2018, a hearing begins at the High Court in Liverpool in which lawyers acting for the hospital claim further treatment for Alfie is unkind and inhumane. February 2nd, 2018, one of Alfie's doctors tells the judge there is no hope for the youngster was in a semi-vegetative state from a degenerative neurological condition doctors have not been able to definitively identify. February 5th, Mr Evans tells the court Alfie looks me in the eye and wants his help. February 20th, Mr Justice Hayden rules in favour of hospital bosses saying he accepted medical evidence which showed further treatment was futile. March the 1st, three Court of Appeal judges begin analysing the case after Alfie's parents made a challenge to the High Court ruling. The family asked for the appeal hearing to be adjourned for a few weeks so they can discuss the ruling with lawyers, but the judges refuse. March the 6th, Court of Appeal judges uphold the decision of Mr Justice Hayden. March the 8th, Alfie's parents asked for the case to be considered by Supreme Court justices. March 20th, Supreme Court justices decide the case is not worth arguing and refuse to give the couple permission to mount another appeal. March 28th, judges at the European Court of Human Rights reject a bid from Mr Evans and Miss James for them to examine issues relating to Alfie's future, saying they found no appearance of any human rights violation. April 11th, Mr Justice Hayden endorses an end-of-life care plan for Alfie drawn up by specialists. April 12th, protesters gather outside Alderhey Hospital as Alfie's father insists he has the right to take him home. April 16th, Alfie's parents argue he is being wrongly detained at Alderhey and make a habeas corpus application. Judges at the Court of Appeal in London rule against them and again uphold the decisions of Mr Justice Hayden. The couple's lawyer said they might make a further appeal to the Supreme Court. Merseyside police launched an investigation into instances of verbal abuse and acts of intimidation among protesters outside the hospital. Judges raised concerns about reports that ambulances and staff were unable to enter the hospital and that patients and their families had been frightened. Alfie's parents apologised saying they did not intend to harm or cause conflict or upset. Why should they have to apologise when they're just trying to get justice and treatment for their son? April 17th, Mr Evans and Ms James asked Supreme Court justices to consider their case for a second time, a spokeswoman confirms. April 18th, Mr Evans flies to Rome and meets with Pope Francis. He kissed the Pope's hand and begged the leader of the Catholic Church to save Alfie's life. April 20th, the Supreme Court rules against Alfie's parents for a second time, refusing them permission to appeal against the decision. Mr and Ms Evans have been trying to persuade the court that Alfie was being unlawfully detained at Alderhey Hospital. The parents make an application to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg to take Alfie to Rome for treatment instead of letting him come off life support. April 23rd, the European Court of Human Rights refused the application made by Alfie's parents, saying the European Court of Human Rights has today rejected the application submitted by the family of Alfie Evans as inadmissible. A group of about 200 protesters tries to storm Alderhey Hospital, where Alfie has been receiving treatment. Police officers blocked the entrance as dozens of people charged at the doors. Alfie Evans is granted Italian citizenship in a bid to facilitate moving Alfie to Italy to receive treatment. The Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs said Foreign Minister Angelino Alfano and Interior Minister Marco Moniti have granted citizenship to Little Alfie. 
The Italian government hopes that in this way, being an Italian citizen will enable the immediate transfer of the child to Italy. On Monday evening, a High Court judge dismisses new submissions made in private by the lawyers for Alfie's parents via telephone. At around 9pm, life support is withdrawn by doctors at Alder Hay Hospital, according to Mr. Evans. He said in a Facebook post that his son had been breathing for himself since 9.17pm, April 24th. Alfie was still breathing on his own this morning, according to his father. At 7am, Mr. Evans said nine hours he's been breathing now. It's actually come to the point where his mum is asleep next to him. She can actually go to sleep next to him. She feels comfortable with him. April 25th, Alfie's parents fail in an 11th hour attempt to persuade judges to let them move the terminally ill youngster to a foreign hospital. April 26th, Alfie's parents pledge to work alongside doctors to give the boy the dignity and comfort he needs. April 28th, the 23-month-old who was being treated at Elder Hay died at 2.30am. Well, in any sane civilised society, Alfie and anyone else in that situation would be given the treatment they need to keep him alive. But because we live in a psychopathic society, people don't always get the treatment they need. As well as the fact that doctors, in large numbers, there will be exceptions I'm sure, but in large numbers don't understand the true nature of the human body. And there are cutting edge alternative healers out there who understand the body far more than regular doctors. But because they're coming from a different perspective, they don't get the prominence and prestige that regular doctors get. Instead of looking with an open mind, with all options considered, including alternative treatment methods that have been shown to work, why Alfie had a problem in the first place, why he was getting these seizures and trying to solve the problem. They conclude, because of their limited knowledge and because mainstream medicine is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what the body is, that nothing can be done. And so that's their starting point. And they decide then from that misguided conclusion that the only thing to do is withdraw life support and allow the baby to die. Also, this story is one of many where the state decides what happens, not the parents. It's not the first time this has happened. We had the case of Charlie Gard last year where Charlie had mitochondrial condition and the parents wanted him removed from Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital in London to an overseas hospital where he could get treatment that he wouldn't have got in London. And a spokesman for the family called Seton Marsden told Sky News, baby Charlie wouldn't have become what is essentially, and these are my words, a prisoner of the state. The child is effectively being taken prisoner by the NHS and by the state. That's exactly what we're looking at. Got more and more state intervention on child's lives and taking decision-making away from parents, as I've talked about before. The elite want an end to parenting, as I've said many times before, and this recent story with Alfie Evans is only one example among many of the first stage to an end of parenting, which is the state taking power away from parents. The parents should be the ones who decide what happens with Alfie, not the state but it's about the state becoming the parents in the end. We see this in school, where schools find parents for taking their kids out of school and in term time to come on holiday. Also, in certain schools now, kids' lunchboxes being checked to see what the kids are eating and if they don't like the contents of the kids' lunchboxes, they take the lunch away. I know someone whose kid goes to a school where that happens. In Scotland, they have a named person scheme. I talk about this in episode four, part two. This episode four is in two parts. The named person is a state-appointed person who oversees everything in a kid's life. And this is the norm in Scotland now. They oversee everything in a kid's life. And if there's anything they think is even mildly suspicious or wrong, by their state-defined definition of wrong, they report to the authorities and the child could end up being taken away. We've got more and more children being taken into care from loving parents on manufactured or exaggerated reasoning. I know of one person myself who that's happened to. And we also have the state deciding what happens in terms of medical care for children. Babies in the case of Alfie Evans, rather than the parents. Like I said, this isn't the first time this 
has happened to this story with Anthony Evans. And it won't be the last either. These are all examples of moving towards the point where the state becomes the parent, and in the end, not even the parent, but the manufacturer with the synthetic human agenda, which I've talked about before. Parenting is time-limited, really, as far as the elite's agenda is concerned, anyway. Another article here about family, but it actually connects into other areas, as I'll explain. This is in the Daily Mail. Death of the stay-at-home mum. Only one in five wealthy women choose full-time motherhood. Only one in five middle-class mothers stay at home to bring up their children, marking a huge social change, researchers claim. The increasing number of girls studying at university and going on to well-paid careers has helped bring about a massive decline in full-time motherhood among women in well-off homes. They have been turning their backs on their traditional child-rearing lifestyle, choosing instead to work when their children are young at twice the rate of their lower earning counterparts. The report from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, Britain's most prominent economic think tank, is the first to point to the predominance of middle-class women among the millions embracing working motherhood. It comes as couples who are striving to buy a home are under unprecedented financial pressure to meet high mortgage costs. But the IFS also said that the most wealthy mothers, those with the highest earning husbands or partners, were far less likely to work than those with upper middle incomes. Well, of course, because they don't have to. This may point to the emergence of a class of well-heeled mothers who regard the lack of the need to work as a mark of status. Forty years ago, almost half of couples bringing up children were split into a breadwinner and a full-time parent, invariably the mother. But the share of couples who raised their family in their traditional sense has now dropped to 27% and is even lower in my middle-class families. In the 70s, 61% of mothers with lower-earning husbands were likely to work compared with 60% who had higher-income partners. Nowadays, although 70% of mothers with less well-paid partners work, the figure for mothers with partners on above-average pay has soared to 79%. This did not apply to the richest families, however. The report said the probability of mothers being in work initially increases with their partner's earnings before declining among the partners of the very highest earning men. London had the lowest rate of working women in Britain last year with 74% of those aged between 25 and 54 in jobs. The IFS claimed that the new working mothers were mostly in full-time rather than part-time jobs, adding the increase in maternal employment has been concentrated among those with children of preschool to primary school age and among partners of relatively high-earning men. Women born in the 80s are more than four times more likely to go to university than those of their mother's generation. Some 45% of women in their 30s have a degree or equivalent compared with only 13% of those in their mid-50s. But the report said this falls well short of explaining the rise in employment among women. IFS analyst Barra Rowntree added employment rates for working-age women have increased dramatically over the past four decades, particularly for those with young children. This is a huge social and economic change. The vast majority of couples now have two adults in paid work, with the earnings of women increasingly important for these families. Understanding the reasons behind persistent differences in the wages of men and women is all the more important. The gender pay gap is almost halved over the past 20 years as more mothers of young children stay in the workforce. In 1997, the difference between male and female earnings was 17.4% for full-time workers, but this had fallen to 9.1% by last April. This is where feminism comes in. This article is talking about 
mothers in general, but one of the effects of feminism is women in the workplace more, meaning they can be taxed like men and contributing to breaking up the family, which is perfect for the elite, because they want to break up anything that brings people together. So the less time that parents have with their kids, especially when they're growing up, will obviously contribute to that. Also, the article says this change comes as couples find it harder to buy a home under high mortgage costs. This is how it works. If you want to bring about a certain situation in society and you need a certain financial situation to bring it about, then it's no problem for you, the elite, to do that, given that they own the global banking system ultimately. Also, in the end, they don't want people owning homes. They want them in high-rise, narrow living space. High-rise, narrow flats, basically. This is the world of Agenda 21 out of the United Nations. And this plays into the Smart Cities Agenda. Story about robotics now. This is in the Daily Mail. Robots will outnumber humans by 2048. Leading futurologist predicts droid population to grow from 57 million to 9.4 billion in 30 years. A vision of robots taking over the world might sound like something out of a dystopian science fiction novel, but robots will outnumber humans by 2048 in experts predicted today. According to leading futurologist Dr. Ian Pearson, Earth's robot population will grow from around 57 million to 9.4 billion over the next 30 years. Dr. Pearson, a British novelist, engineer and inventor, said robots could also become emotionally intelligent by 2028. He said his predictions are based on a modest assumption that the number of robots will grow by a fifth each year. If the take-up is quicker, robots could overtake humans by as early as 2033. Separate studies have predicted huge numbers of workers will be replaced by robots in manufacturing, finance, accountancy and transport among those hardest hit. Only last week, Bank of England Governor Mark Carney warned the automation of millions of jobs could lead to mass unemployment, rising inequality, wage stagnation, and the resurgence of Marxism within a generation. And what does that help create? The Hunger Games society structure. Dr. Pearson said, today the global robot population is probably around 57 million. That will grow quickly in the foreseeable future, and by 2048 robots will overtake humans. If, if we allow for likely market acceleration, that could happen as early as 2033. By 2028, some of these robots will already be starting to feel genuine emotions and to respond to us emotionally. The idea of robots taking over the world makes many of us nervous. According to a poll of 2,000 adults, 7 in 10, 71%, well, that's actually just over 7 in 10, fear the rise of artificially intelligent robots, and nearly 6 in 10, 59%, believe robots pose a threat to humanity. More than half of those surveyed, 54%, believe scientists won't be able to control the rise of artificially intelligent robots. Asked what would frighten them most about the rise of robots, almost half, 43%, said they were worried robots would take control of society. Almost 4 in 10, 37% fear robots can become more intelligent than humans. 34% worry robots could reduce their chances of getting a new job. The research was commissioned by streaming service Now TV, which is promoting the launch of the second series of Westworld. Based on a 1973 Michael Crichton film starring Yul Brynner, this is about androids in a western-themed amusement park that start killing visitors. I've been watching Westworld recently. I've watched the entire first series. I'm in the middle of watching the first episode, which is over an hour long, of season two. And it's very interesting in the way that it portrays the fact that it's only down in the world of Westworld. It's only down to the robots that humans have control over them in the end. And especially in our world, when you get to the element of artificial intelligence. I've said before, humans will have no control over that. There's algorithmic intelligence, which is pre-programmed and works for itself up to a point but within the constraints of the coding of the algorithm but then there's fully self-aware artificial intelligence and that is something else to say the least 
the article goes on, but there are some very heavyweight people that believe we should take the threat of robots very seriously. Experts have warned many professions, including accountants and estate agents, can be almost wiped out. Bank of England Governor Mark Carney has predicted that 15 million Britons, almost half of the 31.8 million workforce, could be replaced by robots over the coming years as livelihoods were mercilessly destroyed by the technological revolution. But some believe it's not just our jobs we should be worried about. Elon Musk, the billionaire founder of PayPal, Tesla and SpaceX, has warned robots pose a fundamental risk to the existence of humanity. Which I agree with, but then he says humans must merge with AI to save them from AI. And he's got a company called Neuralink to connect the human brain to technology. So, I don't know what I make of Elon Musk. He's also involved in the sending up of satellites in low orbit above the Earth to bathe the Earth in Wi-Fi, 5G Wi-Fi. And I've talked about 5G before in episode 8 and 12. The reason they want to blanket the Earth in Wi-Fi is part of the technological agenda, just as robots are. So, just as artificial intelligence is, it's all part of the same agenda. So, I don't know what I make of Elon Musk. Anyway, the article goes on. In response to footage of a 6 foot 9 inch humanoid robot made by Boston Robotics doing a backflip, Mr. Musk warned on Twitter, This is nothing. In a few years, that bot will move so fast you'll need a strobe light to see it. Sweet dreams. Others have stressed that the rise of machines will boost productivity, creating other jobs for humans. Well, the timescale mentioned in this article don't seem to be too far off. They seem to be quite accurate because you've got people like Ray Kurzweil, an executive of Google and the co-founder of the Singularity University in Silicon Valley, California, a global promoter and author on the subject of the technological agenda and artificial intelligence, talking about all human minds being connected to the cloud, as he calls it, which needs 5G Wi-Fi to operate, at least he says all human minds will be connected to the cloud by 2030 as part of the technological agenda. And another layer of the technological agenda is robotics. And I keep seeing 2030 everywhere in relation to different aspects of the elite's agenda, as I said before. And then when you add into all this the fact that 5G, this abomination to human health that's being rolled out and is waiting in the wings to be unleashed, and that is the word, on an unsuspecting population, is planned to be commonplace by 2020. As a story I covered in episode 12, talked about, and the rise in automation of robotics in society already, you put all that together, then everything's planned to come together over the next decade or so in terms of a technological takeover. We really are in the eye of the storm right now as far as technology goes, and it will culminate, and I know I keep saying this, but it's so important to understand, while we still can, that it's planned to culminate in the end of humanity as we know it. This is the choice we face as a human race. People are being diverted by the irrelevant demands of political correctness from transgender to an LGBT. So what if someone didn't use the right term to describe you? Over it. People are being diverted into pro-Trump and anti-Trump. Irrelevant. The election was last year. Did these people not realise that? Get over it. We are facing the end of humanity as we know it. And these people getting diverted into these irrelevant points of focus are playing a fundamental part in allowing it to happen by spending their time focusing on that rather than what are the three most important subjects in the world right now. People talk about the end of the world. So I don't see the end of the world unless World War Three kicks off. But I don't see the end of the world. I see the end of humanity as we know it. Very different thing. The world will still be here, but humans won't as we know them now. The three most important subjects in the world right now. Transgenderism in terms of where it's designed to end. The technological agenda in all its forms and the synthetic human agenda. And the destruction of freedom of speech and political correctness. Part of which, by the way, is there to stop exposure of the transgender 
agenda by saying you can't say this or that, you can't criticise the idea of transgender. They don't want the truth about that coming out. It's nothing to do with discrimination, stopping discrimination. It's about stopping exposure of what that agenda is about because transgender fundamentally connects into the technology agenda and the synthetic human agenda. You've got feminists supporting organisations like Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is a eugenics operation and it's about abortion, which is a clueless feminist support. The reason the elite want abortion is because they have a depopulation agenda, because they want to cull a massive percentage of the global population to make it more manageable for them. And also, this is the most important reason, because they want to crowd people into smart cities controlled by artificial intelligence. And if you're going to do that, then you need to cull a massive percentage of the global population, and that's what their depopulation agenda and its various and many forms is all about. So those three issues, transgender, the technology agenda, and political correctness, all of which are fundamentally connected, are the three most important issues in the world right now. Not just because of what they are, but because they're happening right now. Yes, we're being moved closer and closer to World War III, but World War III is not happening right now. The build-up to it is, and the steps towards it are happening, but World War III in and of itself is not happening. Hopefully it never does. But those three issues I just mentioned are happening. And that's what makes them the three most important issues in the world right now. Beyond anything else, and what that means is that we are also facing right now the most important choice in human history. Do we get diverted away from focusing on these issues by getting diverted into pro-Trump or anti-Trump or whatever other subject is our focus? Or none, in some people's cases. Or do we take our focus away from these irrelevant issues and focus on these three issues, the most important issues in the world right now, and three of the most important in human history? That's the choice. Get informed about them and focus on them, or stay as most people are and do what most people do and have done up to this point, which is nothing. In which case, not too long from now, there will be no more human as we know it. It's time to get informed and focus on this while we still can. Another story here about technology. This is in the Daily Mail. Interview with a robot, AI revolution hits human resources. You have a telephone interview for your dream job and you're feeling nervous. You might make yourself a cup of tea as you wait for the phone to ring and you count to three before picking up. Now imagine your interviewer is a robot named Vera. Russian startup Stafery co-founder Alexei Kostarev says robot Vera, which his company developed, is driven by artificial intelligence algorithms. It's machine learning, Kostarev said, as he explained that his firm programmed Vera using 1.4 million interviews as well as Wikipedia and 160,000 books. When Vera first started conducting phone interviews, she followed a script, but that has since changed. Vera understands the kind of answers candidates give. Moscow-based Kostarev told AFP by phone. And while robot recruiters will appeal to companies trying to cost down, there may also be another more subtle advantage. When candidates give feedback on a job offer, for example, they say more honest things they would not tell a human, Kostarev said. Staffery says Robot Vera currently has 200 clients, major companies which then take the selected job candidates through conventional interviews and final selection. More broadly, human resources specialists are looking to AI solutions to speed up recruitment processes as a whole. US company ZipRecruiter is touting a real-time selection service with each job offer posted immediately on as many as 100 websites. In the blink of an eye, its algorithm then trawls through the 10 million job seekers who have registered with ZipRecruiter to see which best suit the job description. The prospective employer then gets a short list of the top candidates, making recruitment a far less time-consuming exercise. 
Ian Siegel, head of ZipRecruit, told AFP the system works well because employers aren't great at describing what they want, but they know what they want when they see it. The article goes on. Algorithms get better and better over time at detecting what kind of profile companies are looking for as human resources staff give a virtual thumbs up to their preferred candidates. So far, so good, but of course there are concerns. For one, the algorithms are learning so fast it's hard to work out how they make such crucial choices. There is also a fear that the robots cannot remain immune to weaknesses, such as bias or prejudice, when all their learning comes from humans. ZipRecruiter is trying its best to take the risk of bias into account on its algorithms. But the thing is, the algorithm is so sophisticated, there's so many different pieces of information. We can't reverse engineer exactly how it's coming out with the matches, Siegel said by Finn. Jeremy Lamry of the Paris-based Association of Human Resources Startups called LabHR said one way to counter this risk is to dial down the AI in the system. It is enough to tell the machine what to look out for. There is no need for machine learning in this, he said. Technology is developing all the time as employers look for candidates with soft skills such as learning capacity, adaptability and the ability to work well in a team. If tomorrow someone invents a scanner which can tell simply by looking into your eye whether you can perform well in a job, then I would think most companies would adopt it, said Lamry. But if machines can make the initial selection, it should always be up to human beings to make the final choice, said Laurent de Silva, head of a Deco recruitment units, Badenoch and Clark and Spring. It's like in our private lives, he said. AI can help facilitate meetings. AI can help facilitate meetings, but at the end of the day, it takes two real people to tangle. Well, of course, this is only one step away from AI and robots doing the jobs themselves. And of course, we are seeing automation and robotics taking the places of humans in jobs already. And of course, this will contribute, as I've said before, to rising unemployment, which contributes to the Hunger Games society. So it's all connected. I've talked before about how artificial intelligence is designed to take over everything and the CIA talk about the Internet of Things where domestic appliances and more are connected to the Internet. Smart meters play a part in this, connecting the energy systems of homes to the Internet wirelessly. And the idea is that everything is connected to a central point of information retention wirelessly, controlled by artificial intelligence. We've also got the concept of the Internet of Everything whereby it's not just home appliances and technology connected to the central point, it's the human mind through technology in the brain and in the body. In the end, it won't even be algorithms. It will be a fully sentient self-awareness with, I would say, after looking into this, a very malevolent perception and perspective controlling everything, including the human mind. Story here about retail in the form of high street shops. This is in the Daily Mail. Is it just me? Or is the death of the shoe shop a tragedy? Asks Sarah Vine. Now this might seem from the headline to be something of nothing, but it's a short article, but it's actually a very important article because of what comes out of it. Humanity faces many challenges. Russia, well, we've not really seen any evidence for that, despite all the claims about Russia. Global warming, bollocks. Economic meltdown, I agree with that one. On a scale, by the way, most people will not even comprehend yet in terms of economic meltdown. But nothing threatens the future of civilization. Well, my corner of it at any rate, says Sarah Vine. Quite like this latest nugget of doom, shoe shops are dying. According to new research, the shoe shop 
that once proud staple of the high street is edging towards extinction. Second only to fashion retailers, the number of UK shoe shops shrunk by 86 last year as 164 closed and only 78 opened. The culprit, the internet of course, once footwear is the one slice of the retail sector relatively immune to the lure of the laptop. Now we no longer feel the need to try shoes on before we buy them. One of my first jobs was as a Saturday girl in Russell and Bromley. I was attracted to the role because it meant I could get a discount on a pair of shoes. Then and now the height of sophistication. Once buying a new pair of shoes was an event, a long-term investment for most people, now you can grab a cheap pair in Tesco alongside the weekly shop. Inevitable though this decline may seem, that doesn't mean it's any less sad. Nothing can replace the thrill of gazing at the perfect pair of shoes in the window, of trying them on, having a conversation with the assistant about whether you want the matching handbag. Never. And if Madame will be requiring rain protector, I already have half a dozen cans. In Madrid, there's a street made up entirely of shoe shops. I recently spent a blissfully happy afternoon there, trying on everything from heels to trainers. If the end really is nigh for the British shoe shop, you'll find me there. Well, as I've said before, the end is nigh for all shops and all businesses of any size, because the agenda is for only giant corporations owned by the elite, less than 1%, to run the world. Sarah Vine also makes another point here about retail increasingly happening online and of course that contributes to people using physical shops less and less but it's only a stepping stone towards corporations being online only and with mega monopolies like Amazon which sells virtually anything now I covered a story last week about the way Amazon treats its workers and this is planned for everywhere the agenda is to get rid of ethical, honest and responsible businesses. They just want giant corporations with a corporate mentality and a corporate world. The corporations, because of trade deals like TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, operated out of the European Union and America, will be able to take governments to court to overturn laws that are there for customer protection and customer well-being. If the corporations feel those laws may affect profits, so supporting businesses, especially small and medium-sized businesses, is more important than ever. Not just shops, but businesses in general. Because it's the only way they're going to survive. And if they go, then we're left with corporations that are there to do only one thing. Introduce the elite's agenda into human society. There's a scene from a film called Idiocracy, which is a film I recommend watching. There's a scene in it where the Braundale Corporation, an energy drink corporation, ends up buying up everything, including government organizations that are there in the world of the film anyway, to regulate what's sold and hold businesses and corporations to account for what they sell. <laughs> and Braundale ends up buying them up as well. This is where it's going. I'll upload a video of this scene on YouTube when I upload this episode. There's another story here that follows on from that. This is in the Express. High Street in crisis. Another one and a half thousand stores collapse as business rates soar. Today, the British Independent Retailers Association has issued a start warning to the government. Chief Executive Alan Hawkins said, if I could give one message, I'd say sort out the rates. It's not fair. It's not as though the high street is finished, but we need some help quickly to make sure we have a rosier future. Explaining that 65% of the shops are independent, he said, if we don't find a way out of the current situation, the government is going to be left with the problem of what to do with these high streets that have nothing there. People say put libraries in and health centres, but the government does not have the money to fill the gaps that will be left by independent shops. 
Well, it's interesting the government doesn't have the money to do certain things that would be beneficial for society, but it always has money to go to war. It always has money when it comes to the agenda for society. Anything to do with that, they can always find the money. The article goes on. The study on the state of the high street by the local data company, Ambira, found that Yorkshire and the Humber and Greater London have suffered the greatest decline in independent shops in the past year. In Yorkshire and the Humber, 460 stores closed with 374 shutting in Greater London. However, the West Midlands managed to buck this trend with 213 new stores opening. Telford has the lowest percentage of independent retailers with Yate in Gloucestershire, Bracknell in Berks, Cowley in Oxfordshire and Southford in Greater Manchester the next worst. High street businesses visited by customers like barbers, beauty salons and coffee shops fared the best. News agents, women's clothes shops and estate agents struggled the most. Mr Hawkins continued, these figures come as no surprise. Uncertainty over Brexit, changing shopping habits, a harsh winter and real incomes falling all explain these figures. A consumer is king and if they want to buy online then that is their call. You can't do anything about it. But you can't leave the cost base with the old high street and expect it to survive with a new entrant, the internet. It's not fair to leave the high street to pick up the rates bill when they are only picking up 75% of the trade that used to be there due to what has gone online. We say to the government, let the consumer be king but reduce the rates bill for those left in bricks and mortar on the high street. There should also be an equivalent version of business rates for warehousing, particularly if that warehousing is used for retail fulfilment. The last rates increase in April has been the last straw for a lot of struggling retailers because of the massive increases. The government says it has put rates relief measures in place to help those struggling, but it has not. It has exempted shops below £12,000 rateable value when it used to be £6,000 but there aren't many of our members with rateable value shops at £12,000. Those are really tiny shops. The average independent is trading with a rateable value of about £24,000. He also highlighted the minimum wage and pensions auto enrolment. While the government prefers everyone to earn a certain amount, they have asked employers to pick up a bigger wage bill, he said. They have also made them pick up the cost of auto enrolment into pension schemes. The article goes on. The Trade Association, which represents 150,000 independent UK retailers, has submitted a proposal to the government with simple measures to help its members. A cut in business rates is top of the list. Mr Hawkins said, If we had a £12,000 allowance rather than a £12,000 cliff edge, these shops on £24,000 would see their rates halved, and if they were tighter on charitable relief and harder on internet warehouses, there would, always, there would be ways of making it revenue neutral. He said three P's, parking, property taxes and planning permission, were vitally important. He said parking is number one because it is perceived to be free out of town, even though it's often not. Property taxes, being rates and rents, have also hit the high street. And finally, planning permission, because it is too tempting for local planners to say yes, would allow a major development because it creates 10,000 jobs without realising they are losing 11,000 jobs in the high street. A spokesman from the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government said this government is determined to see our high streets thriving now and in the future. With our future high streets forum, we are working with retail leaders and industry experts to develop new solutions to the challenges we are facing. The world is increasingly taking the shape 
the elite's agenda demands and it's only through information that it's going to be challenged and that's what pay-per-view is about so that's it for this week that's the news that's the context and connections that's pay-per-view more to come next week until then goodbye